Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time joining us today, um, my name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out. And by coming on out, I mean sitting on your living room couch. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we are all still quarantined, but you know, for the most part. Um, but I'm just quite grateful that you give us uh, a little bit of your Sunday morning or whenever you do get a chance to tune in and watch what we're doing here. Um, before we kind of kick off today, sort of in, in light of the recent events of, of this week, um, I prepared some thoughts that I, I just, if you would indulge me, I would just like to, to kind of read those to you. I actually have them prepared. I don't normally read uh, from a paper, but I just felt with sort of the magnitude of what's happening in this country right now, I wanted to make sure that I, I, I said this in a way that we can understand it. Now, in no way am I some wise man. I'm just trying my best, like all of you, to try to understand what's happening out there. But here, here's, here's what I've landed on this week, and I wanted to share it with you. I wrote, I think it's appropriate to just touch on the events of, of this week, because what we are seeing as a nation is sad. And the reason I say it's sad is because this is not how God wanted it to be. You know, when sin entered this world, it brought with it anger and hate and death. And it breaks God's heart to see his children suffering because of sin. There is an account from the New Testament where we learn that one of Jesus' close family friends passed away. His name was Lazarus. And as Jesus stood by his friend's tomb, surrounded by the family, all sobbing, all mourning the loss of their brother, the scripture tells us that Jesus wept. So what are we to learn from that? Well, it tells us that God mourns for us, that he feels our pain, and it breaks his heart that we have to deal with what we have to deal with. And I believe right now that God is mourning for our country. I believe that God is mourning with our country. I believe he is mourning for the black community in the United States of America. And I believe that Jesus weeps when he sees what's happening, and so must we. The constant refrain that I'm hearing this week is that there must be change, but I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know where that starts, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, John. And I can't get into the political side of things. Quite frankly, that's above my pay grade. I don't understand that stuff. I'm not, I don't do that kind of a thing. But here's what I do now. The only way, the only way that we're going to experience real, authentic, and lasting change is through the power of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what we are dealing with in this country is a heart issue. And the only way to change a person's heart isn't through legislation. It's through the love of Jesus Christ. So, you as Christians, what can you do? You can pray. You can share the gospel. You can invite people to church. You are to love your God with all your heart and mind, and soul, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so we here at DHG just continue to pray for this nation. With that being said, today we are wrapping up this series that we have been calling It's All in Your Head. Now, if you've not been a part of what we're doing so far, if you haven't catched up, you know, seen the last couple of weeks, doesn't matter. That's not a problem. These weeks don't build on each other. But let me catch up to speed as to what we have been talking about. The premise of this series is very simple. It's this idea that many of our problems, or perhaps even perceived problems, are born in our heads and sort of take up resonance in our heads and sort of live in our heads. And so what we've been doing every single week is just putting a spotlight on these particular issues and trying to find out what the scripture has to say about a solution. So today, as we wrap up this series, I want to try to answer a question that I believe every single person in the world asks, whether they realize it or not. And this question is one that some people struggle with silently. This question is one where some people openly and publicly talk about it. It's a question that, depending on how you answer it, it has the potential to divide or unite. It has the potential to heal or even destroy. And that question is, who am I? Who am I? Now, for your Lay Miz fans out there, you might ask this question as, Who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. Okay, never mind. I just like, all week long, whenever I've been asking that question, I can't stop thinking of Lay Miz. I don't know if you like that play. It's a Garippa family favorite. Now, it's so embarrassing. My wife is going to be mortified. Anyway, who am I? Now, let me just, I don't want to leave this too fast, because Les Mis, Les Miserables, I don't know if you've seen it, I'm going to assume you've seen it, either on Broadway or in a local production, or maybe even the movie, which was also great, um, but this show, Les Miserables, has many themes. I mean, the biggest one of which I believe to be redemption, but one of the major themes that we, we see take place is this character here, Jean Valjean, is struggling with this idea of identity. Who is this man? Because for him, he was a criminal. And, and then one day, he had a, a, a transformational meeting with God and gave his life over to God. And, and now he's trying to figure out what does it mean to once be a criminal? What does it now mean to be a, a forgiven man? And in a pivotal point in this show, when he sings this song and he asks the question, who am I? He famously responds, 24601, his prison number. But if someone were to ask you the question, who are you? How would you answer? I mean, how do you define yourself? I mean, because ultimately this, this question is, is one about your identity. Who are you? as a human being. What measurements do you use to define yourself? What details do you look at to define yourself? What, what facts come into the equation? What are you using to define your very identity? Now, I think many of us, perhaps, in answering this question, we might point to, uh, you know, our occupation. I'm a pastor. That's who I am. 
Uh, maybe you're a lawyer. Maybe, maybe you would say, I'm a travel agent. Or I'm, I'm a personal trainer. I think we almost do this automatically. We almost point to our occupations automatically, like as though we're programmed as Americans to do this. In fact, there's a name for this. Psychologists call it a work role centrality, meaning that work, your job, your profession, your career is central to your sense of self. Or perhaps when asking, answering the question, who are you, you might be someone that defines themselves by a role uh, in relation to other people. Meaning, you might be someone who says, well, I'm a mother, or I'm a father, or uh, I'm Jacqueline's husband, or I'm a boyfriend, or I'm a girlfriend, or, you know. Or perhaps in answering this question, you might be someone who defines yourself as or by their passion. I'm a traveler. I'm a surfer. I'm a foodie. These are just sort of three examples, occupation, roles, and passions of how people might define themselves. There are, in fact, myriad ways that humans define themselves by their nationality, by their race, by their political party, by their gender, by their sexuality. So I ask you again, who are you? This question has massive significance to our life, and yet I don't think we give it much thought. Now, there are some of us that might have this public identity, but we also might have a hidden identity. That, that there is this way that you see yourself and you define yourself, but you don't really verbalize it to anybody else. Because many of us, when, when we're trying to answer the question, you know, who are you? We think, oh, I'm a failure. You know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe you dropped out of school. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can't get a job for some reason. Whatever the case, there's just this really low self-esteem. And you have made these failures in your life your identity. It reminds me of that one line from a Lumineer song, and it says, I've read the script, the costume fits, so I'll play my part. Now maybe, maybe for you, you are someone that identifies themselves as being a victim. Maybe it's abuse. Um, it could be divorce. But whatever the situation might be, it's sort of become who you are. It's, it's, it shapes your reality. It, it's begun to shape your personality. It's becoming your identity. And this last one, I'm going to throw up here in a second. This last one, I think, hits home for so many Christians. Because even though you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can't seem to, to see yourself in any other way as a sinner. And it's kind of like, yeah, I understand that, that everybody sins. And I understand that God forgives, but I really, I really sinned. I mean, when you go back and you look at my life and you look at the things that I've done, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I really sinned, John. You see, when I look at this list, when I look at this list, and by no means is it exhausted, I'm just struck wondering is this really who we are? I mean, honestly, look at this list right here. 
Is this really who you are as a human being? Or is this just what we do, what we've done, and perhaps what's been done to us? I mean, think about this. Are we not much more than, than what we do for a living? Than what we may have done in the past? May, than, than what has been done to us? Because just for argument's sake, right? Let's just hang out here for a second. For argument's sake, let's say that you're somebody who, who defines themselves by their job, right? What happens if you lose that job? Who are you then? Psychologists will tell you that, it, it, that those who define themselves by their job and then lose that job have a far greater chance at being depressed and anxious, have a far greater chance of feeling like they have lost their identity, and have a far greater chance of feeling as though they have no purpose in this life. Now, what if you're somebody who, who defines yourself by your role? Okay, let's say, for example, you are you find your identity in your marriage. And God forbid, God forbid, your marriage falls apart. Who were you then? See, all of a sudden, the very foundation of our identity is shaken, it, it, it's altered, and we just find ourselves floundering, trying to latch on to anything, something, or someone by which to define ourselves. Which is why psychologists, they will tell you that a stable sense of self cannot exist without an immovable foundation. That, that so often, Identity crisis, okay? Identity crises, I should say, occur because folks attach their identity to external measurements. And as Americans, we are bombarded with messages to, to, to identify ourselves to these external measurements, to, to our career, to success, to our money, to politics. And, and it is no wonder I mean, honestly, it's no wonder why we all struggle to truly and honestly and meaningfully answer the question, who are you? So for my goal for today, my goal for today is this. I want to help you answer this question. I really want to make sure that every single person who comes to downtown Harbor Church, that when it comes to your identity, when it comes to answering the question, who are you, has an immovable foundation to base your sense of self on. So where do you start? Well, I think to answer the question, who are you, we first need to answer the question, who are you? In Christ. See, because if we can begin to understand who we are in Christ, and, and the reason I say understand who we are is because we may say that we are Christians, but do we really understand what that means? And if we can begin to understand what that really means, if we can begin to really internalize who we are in Christ, it can completely transform the way that we view ourselves, and it can completely set us free from the vicissitudes of this life. So where do we start in order to build this picture of what our true identity looks like? Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, 
who is famous for being a bloodthirsty murderer of Christians. That was his identity. Oh, did he love that identity until the day that he met the risen Jesus Christ. And his life was changed forever. And he went on to, to travel the world and start churches and, and to write the New Testament. This man, perhaps more than any other person alive, understands the importance of finding and rooting your true identity in Christ. One day, he was writing a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. And he was speaking to them about what it looks like, this sort of Christian identity that we're talking about. Take a look at what he says here. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, even before, listen to this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Let me, let me read that again because I want to make sure this really sinks in. He says that even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Think about the magnitude of this statement for a second. That even before the world was made, I'm talking hundreds of millions of billions of years ago, God loved you. That before the world was even a concept, that God had already forgiven everything that you would have done through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, this is truly one of the most profound verses in all of scripture. And all the while, we struggle to find our self-worth. I mean, maybe because it's something you've done in the past or something that was done to you while we try to, to attach our self-worth to external measurements that can change at any time, all the while, the God of the universe looks at you and says, because of my son, Jesus Christ, you are loved, you are holy, and you are without fault. Now, that's an identity. Lose your job? I'm loved. The world pushes you down? I'm holy. Satan whispers into your ear about your past? I am without fault because of what my Savior Jesus Christ did on that cross. Paul continues. He says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Now, this is one of those verses that I believe is, it's one of those we just kind of breeze past. We go, oh, that's nice. Some nice words. And we kind of just, we don't really think much about what it's saying, but I want to land on this concept of adoption for a little bit. I actually wanted to help drive almost the remainder of our conversation for today. Because understanding adoption when it comes to our identity in Christ is massively important. So, in the context of Jewish culture, of which Paul was a part of, there was no formal process for adoption. It, it, I mean, adoption, it, it really wasn't a concept in a way. And so when Paul 
um, references adoption, which he does several times throughout the New Testament, he is actually referring to Roman adoption. And Roman adoption is a big deal. Now, why is he talking about Roman adoption? Don't forget that they are now under Roman occupation. They live under the Roman Empire. They abide by Roman laws. And so when Paul speaks of adoption, he is talking about Roman adoption. Now, in Rome, in the Roman Empire, biological parents had the right to disown their children for a variety of reasons. Just, just whatever, basically, whatever you want, you could just disown your child. So a biological family at this point in time wasn't really considered to be necessarily permanent, and it wasn't considered to be necessarily loving. But in the case of adoption, it was a completely different story. I mean, completely different story. Because Roman adoption, Roman adoption signified that a child was freely chosen and desired by the parents. As we saw in the last verse, in verse 5, Paul kind of borrows from this Roman idea of adoption to let you know that you, you are freely chosen by God. And that it gives him great pleasure to welcome you into his family and to call you one of his children. And this just has so many ramifications for us as Christians. I mean, particularly, particularly if you are somebody whose identity has been negatively shaped by a bad home life whether it was an, an absent parent or perhaps an abusive parent, Paul's letting us know that you have a perfect father that loves you and, and desires you and wants you in his family. Secondly, we learn that Roman adoption ensured, it's a big word, ensured that a child could not be disowned. It means that when you were adopted during the Roman times, that you were officially and legally and permanently a part of that family. Now, why does Paul latch on to this concept? It's because he wants you to know that because of Jesus Christ, we cannot be separated from the love of God. In fact, in Romans, he says this, he goes, and I'm convinced, he goes, guys, here's the deal, I'm convinced. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, nothing. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Now, that's a stable foundation on which we can build an identity. God's never going to walk out on you. God's never going to abandon you. He's never going to disown you. You don't need to prove yourself to, to make him love you. You don't need to hide your struggles in order to keep his love. He adopted you with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are officially and legally and permanently a part of God's family. Also, according to Roman law, when you were adopted into a new family, you actually received a new identity. You, you, you were grafted into a completely new lineage. You got a new name. You were given new responsibilities. You were handed a new life. And similarly, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, you received a new identity as well. 
Paul tells us that this means that anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That old life, gone. A new life has begun, which means that the moment that you turn your life over to God, that God handed you a new passport, he handed you a new ID card, he handed you a new life. And with that new life, you were given a brand new status. Forgiven. You were forgiven. Fully and completely, no matter what you did, no matter what the enemy whispers into your ear about your past, you are forgiven. And this is so important here. This is so important here because if you are somebody that has made your sin and your past your identity, if you are somebody that says, yeah, I understand that God forgives, but you don't know what I've done. I, I, yes, I've said yes to Jesus, but there are things in my past that, that I, I just, I, they're always going to be held against me. Let me tell you what God said. God himself said in the book of Isaiah, I, this is God talking, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. It says he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he purchased your freedom from sin, he secured your salvation, and when you said yes to Jesus, God let go of your past forever. The question is, will you? Humans, the human race, struggles to find their identity. And I, th I, think, it's, I think it's led to, to so much confusion in this world. I, I think it's led to so much heartache. I think it's led to violence. I really do. I think it's led to hate. I really do. But as Christians, as those of us who have said yes to Jesus Christ, let me remind you of your true identity in Christ. You are a child of God. You are irreplaceable. You are loved beyond compare. And you were worth dying for. And you are forgiven. And you have been set free. And you are secure for all eternity. And with that identity, you can do anything. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If this is your first time joining us here at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week, without fail, we put this word on the screen because we wanna make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So this week, what I want you to do is I really want you to, to try to answer the question, where am I tempted to find my identity? Where am I tempted to, to, to locate and, and latch on and base my identity? When you are asked the question, who are you? What would you say? 
What have you been saying? What are the things that you have clung to to define yourself, to the world, and to you? Secondly, how would your life change if you began to identify yourself as a child of God? Because according to the scripture, this is all that matters, folks. This is the only thing that matters. What, what would your career look like with this new identity? What, what would your marriage look like with this identity? What would this country look like if we all began to finally embrace our true identity in Jesus Christ? I want to close us out today. Um, by reading a passage of scripture that I think just sort of ties the bow on this discussion of our, of our true identity in Christ. And, and what is so amazing about what we're about to see here is how it talks about the unifying ability of identifying yourself in Jesus Christ. Paul writes this. In this new life, meaning... Once you say yes to Jesus, once you call yourself a Christian, Paul says this, in this Christian life, one's nationality or race or education or social position is unimportant. Such things mean nothing. Whether a person has Christ is what matters. And he is equally available to all. And since, he says, since you have been chosen by God who has given you this new kind of life, and because of his deep love and concern for you, you should practice tender-hearted mercy and kindness to others. Be gentle, he says, and ready to forgive and never hold grudges. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must, that's a command, so you must forgive others. Most of all, most of all, let love guide your life. For then the whole church will stay together in perfect harmony. Let me pray for you. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to come together as a church, as a city, and as a Christian family, God. Lord, answering this question, who am I, is one that we all struggle with. We tend to think it's something that adolescent children deal with. Lord, no, this is something that follows us our whole life, God. And I pray that today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would know that those of us who have said yes to your Son, Jesus Christ, have an immovable foundation on which we can base our true identity. We are loved. We are children of God. And with this identity, Lord, this world can be changed. Help us, God, 
to embrace this identity. Help us to go out into this world and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.